talk with Rick and Paul, and today we are going to talk about one of the dumbest ideas in America in centuries. That would be putting us on the radio? That's number two. That's number two. <laughs> this is even worse. It's prohibition. Hard to it, imagine. I know, but prohibition <laughs> was worse, and what's even worse than prohibition was the tangle of laws that came out afterwards that complicates yeah. how all of us buy one. You will roll your eyes at most of this. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today we're going to explain the unexplainable, all the complications, confusion, legal insanity around the simple act of selling wine. Plus, we have listener questions you'll love. One is, can you make wine with a 3D printer? Mm-hmm. And as usual, we will make fun of wine snobs. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're going to try to explain the completely slapdash, inconsistent, irrational set of rules that create havoc on all of us buy wine. They're called tight house laws, they are a hornet's nest, Paul. Rick, don't get started on this. You're just going to get yourself all excited. I'm, I'm, guess, uh, I'm guessing you don't up. like these. I do not like these. I do not like <laughs> these. I am worked up as anyone would be if they understood them. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, well, that's it, the kind of thinking that got us a radio show, Rick. It is, that is exactly <laughs> the kind of irrationality. All right. So, and we get lots of questions on uh, this subjects like this, but something happened just recently that sort of puts meat on the silliness. It was a big deal um, all around the wine industry uh, about a week and a half ago, I think it was, um, when the Save Mart Great Escape, which is a big deal wine event here in Sacramento, was right. canceled. And the reason it was canceled was because no wineries signed up. Well, right. four. But last year they had 44. Right. And, and the reason they didn't sign up was they got scared. They got scared because last year a couple of wineries tweeted this. and w- See us at Save Mart Great Escape. Right. Which You'd is the think, name of the event. You know, it's, it's a little bit like a rock band saying, hey, we're going to be playing at Bottle Rock Festival in Napa. Come see us on this night. But if it was the Save Mart Bottle Rock Festival, they would be breaking, according to the a- California ABC. Which it, is the... The, Amer- uh, the alcohol, alcohol beverage control. That's right. Um, which is a far even less rational than the television network. <laughs> <laughs> Although those guys, I've, I used to cover them, and they're pretty irrational too. <laughs> uh, but they made what they did was they broke a rule that said you can't give a winery or producer can't right. give something of value to a seller. Right. And using their name in a tweet, the ABC decided was, was value. Yeah. yeah. And so that, what? So the, wineries can't help. Stores sell their wine. Right, that's technically what they're saying. Here. Yes. So, yeah. but here's what the ABC do, did: not just saying, you know, guys, you're kind of on the edge here. They like investigated them. So they they went and they they took out all their social media for like months before, right, and to look at what they did and and they and. You know, they they sent them letters threatening, and this is always the first thing: is that they suspend their license for ten days, which means they can't; they're out of business that, for ten that days. That gets your attention, doesn't it? Yeah. For, yeah, for something was so minor. And here's one of the things I, I liked was um, uh, one of the uh, the local papers in Sacramento talks to the ABC director, a guy named Tim Gorsuch, and he says, and I quote, "I wish I knew why things shook out the way they did." Well, here's a reason. His staff went nuts. (laughs) And here's another reason. Yeah. His staff is not allowed 
to give legal advice. Of course, they're not attorneys. They're, yeah. So if you said, is this against your rules, they, they can't tell say, you. They could say, well, we can't really tell you that, but go ahead and try it. And if it is, we'll clobber you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So welcome to the results of prohibition, well, ladies you and know, gentlemen. But there's another layer to this, Rick, that we should explore a little bit, which is most wineries understand that they can't run an ad in the local newspaper that says, buy our wine at right. Joe's Pizzeria. They right. understand that. That is kind of written in to the code of laws that you get when you open a winery. The real question here was, is social media subject to the same kind of regulation? So, in other words, is a tweet saying, hey, we're going to be at Joe's pouring our wine that, is that also an advertisement? And the ABC decided that tweeting is advertising Mm -hmm. and subject to the same laws. Well, and they also decided that because somebody sponsors something by saying the actual name. So if you're selling beer at the Doritos Fiesta Bowl, you can't say, look for us in the stands at the Doritos Fiesta Bowl. But if you just say half the name, then the folks who sponsored the Doritos Fiesta Bowl get a little unhappy about it. Right. So you're you're really caught. And it's it's, it's the the craziness. That's the thing. Rick, how, how did we get here? Uh, that's How the question. Did we get way here? to go, Paul? Because that's what we need to <laughs> describe. So, prohibition itself is one of the really, really dumb ideas of the last couple of centuries, and it was a combination of a lot of forces at once. And they weren't all bad forces or just insane forces. There right. was a lot going on, and it was actually among things was as America was growing. And now we're talking in the, right at the turn of into the the, um, the 20th century. Yep, is America's growing in the cities and the rural areas are starting to fight over power. Well, and you got the Industrial Revolution in full swing, which means you've got a lot of people who are now living in factory towns, working 60, 70, 80-hour weeks and getting paid in cash on a Friday night. And guess what's straight across the street from the factory? Is the brewery pub, the pub that is owned by the brewery. Right. Right. And that was one of the things that was going on. And that's what a lot of the breweries did. Because remember, this was still an era of of where mass distribution was a complicated thing. Yep. It was much easier for yep. them to sell right out their front door. Right. So that was going on. And what was happening, too, was this was the women's suffrage movement was was yes. starting to take shape. But what, among the things that was happening at that time was husbands were getting drunk and coming home and beating their wives. Or, or and at least no coming recourse. home drunk with no money because they'd spent it all or on that, booze. Yeah, on, on and and the, one of the great leaders here was Carrie Nation. Right. Who at a time when most men and Rick, you are not a large person, but the average man in America in these days was smaller than you are. And Carrie Nation was six foot two and walked into bars with an axe. With an axe, yeah. You gotta yeah, love yeah, a yeah. woman like that, yeah. you know. That's right. She <laughs> oh, was man. chopping the bar, not the guys. But um, <laughs> there was also uh, at that, you know, as there often is in America, there was some religious revivalism going right. on. But um, the key element to prohibition was this guy Wayne Wheeler and his belief that if he could sway 15% of the electorate to always vote with him, he could change the political landscape. And he did it. It's one of the real dangers of these sort of single issue campaigns of, you know, you're either with us or you're against us. They, he actually, it didn't matter whether you were a Democrat or Republican, as long as you were pro-prohibition, he would deliver his 15% votes right. to you. He is generally considered the, uh, the the father, the parent of single-interest lobbying in America. And right. not only that, but nasty single-interest lobbying. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. He, he, there was a lot of threats, both um, real and he was tweeting. So, yes, no, he, he was, was tweeting he, in the 20s. The, the, yeah, the, tweeting the, in the teens. <laughs> the version of tweeting. <laughs> so, you know, for, for lots of reasons, uh, prohibition passes. 
Well, it's, it's a constitutional amendment. So you had to have it, first of all, when Congress passed the constitutional amendment, most of them did not believe that the individual states, because you need three-quarters of the states to ratify it as well, most of the people in Congress didn't believe that Wheeler had done what he had done, which was he had organized grassroots, and he had achieved the same kind of goals in all the state legislatures, and very, very quickly it became law. It was interesting. It became law, and they didn't actually have the money to enforce it. Well, that was one of the many problems. So, so here we've got it. This is this was the uh, 1919, the 18th Amendment, and it was sort of enforced in two tiers. I mean, one in in urban areas was it was barely enforced, and in rural areas where there were fewer people, it was easier enforced. But also there was more anti-drinking sentiment. It was enforced right. more differently. Although I have a friend whose grandfather was growing grapes and making wine up in the wine country in Northern California, and he said the day, the week after Prohibition passed, the mayor, the local judge, and the sheriff all showed up at his house, and he thought, I'm in trouble now. And they all walked in, and they said, Larry, we need some wine. We can't have you delivered into town, so we thought we'd drive it out and pick it up. Right, and and people were still allowed to make wine. By the way, everybody was allowed. Yes. and they still had. This is still you know part of laws. Every any person is allowed two hundred gallons yes. for personal use within a year. Yes, and but so, you have to drink it on your own property. Right. You can't take it to somebody's house. So, Rick, the next time you make bathtub gin, please do not bring me a bottle of that to drink in my house. Oh, I house. just stick a straw in it in the bathtub. So <laughs> I just drink the whole tub, and then we move on. <laughs> um, and so uh, without spending too much time on the rise of organized crime, although that maybe actually should be a subject for another day. but, but <laughs> Maybe not this show, though. <laughs> but not this show. And But what happened well, next was— Next, we'll cover FIFA. Yes. Yes. Well, that is—it sounds similar, actually. So organized crime got organized around pro. And and the key element here was prohibition passed and organized crime stepped in to fill a void. And they did it by organizing themselves into vertical monopolies. They controlled production, distribution, and sale in every market. Which is key because what we're about to tell you. So we're going to fast forward. uh, and 14 years. 14 years. uh, The country realizes this is not a good idea. They don't like it. They want to drink. Lots of people are And everybody is drinking. In fact, the consumption of hard alcohol during prohibition actually went up. Yes. Per yes. capita. And, People drank more. And among the things that we're changing, too, is America is continuing to urbanize and the cities are starting to gain more political power. And so yep. that rural – and although Wayne Wheeler was still very powerful, but women had already had now gotten the, the right to vote. So yes. the women's suffrage movement had some power and, and they were less involved in this. And uh, and FDR actually ran on the uh, the platform of repealing prohibition, mm-hmm. among and, other things, among other things. Yes. Yeah, but that was yep. part of it. That was and so yep. it was sort of a slam dunk that it was going to be repealed. Well, remember that you had two things going on because you also had the Great Depression, and people realized that the only people making money was, was organized crime. Right. There is a problem here with this system. Right, there were some jobs involved, but to get some of the states to buy in, because it was a constitutional amendment. Three-quarters of the states had to ratify the repeal as well. Right. And so this is a a common thread in American politics, but it was particularly strong, was the idea was to let states control pretty much everything. Let every state do what it wants. So, so, and what the states wanted was two things. One of them was the, some of them wanted to stay dry. There are counties in Texas you still can't drive through with alcohol in your car. In fact, in some states, they then said, we can't agree as a state, so they actually laid it down to the county level and said each county gets to decide. So the states got 
authority over two things. One, whether they were wet or dry to begin with, but right. also how to deal with this scourge of organized crime. Right. So among the things that happened, though, that was sort of written in uh, at a national level is this thing that we've been calling tight house laws. Mm-hmm. But this is how the states interpreted it entirely differently. And basically what they were saying was, as Paul was just saying, how organized crime got this vertical organization going so that they could right. control everything. So the idea was to break it up. Right. So the so that a producer could not sell directly to a a wholesale a retailer a, a produ- right. so the so the the, well, yeah, the it's even makers- it's even simpler an even simpler way to explain it is to produce wine you need a, 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 a permit or a license from the federal government to distribute you need one also from the state in which you practice and you can't have both and then to own a restaurant or a retail store you need a third kind of license and you and can't win one, of, one of the three so, so you can only do one level of the three tiers so really it is the untied house laws because the idea was that no of those three levels would be connected uh, to any other but part of the issue was that they required this second level. They required you had to go through a distributor. Yes. And, and so among the things that that does, that, that causes an extra layer of both confusion for consumers and for producers. And, and, the, and what they were trying to do is they were trying to take the power away from the producers in, in one case because the producers were owning the retail slots. But what they really did was they ended up making the distributors sort of the, the major. And each state handled it differently. You know, you know, there are some states like Pennsylvania, Utah, Oklahoma, where you have to buy all wine through the state. Yeah. Uh, in the state of Washington, the state of Washington is, its, is the distributor. Yeah. You have a separate tier there that every bottle has to go through the state of Washington, and that's to collect tax. My own favorite, and, and I'm sure you have some other examples, my own favorite is in, in Nevada, you, are, you cannot buy wine direct from a winery except for a spe- specified limits of a case or two a month you can buy. Be above and beyond that, you are then required to fill out forms and pay the tax on it. And because it's the state of Nevada, the entire system is done on the honor system. Oh, of course it is. That, I, that is good. State well, that legalizes casino gambling and prostitution expects all of its all of its citizens to report their additional alcohol purchase on the honor system. Yes, of course they do. And and you know, for <laughs> anybody who goes wine tasting a lot of times this and you ask if can you ship it to me, they they're right. going to ask you what state you live in because yeah. there's a list. Um I have a list of a handful of the of the the different patchwork that makes it both insane if you are a buyer or a seller. Right. We've talked about this before. Places states like New York and New Jersey are what they call one man one license, which right. means you can't own two liquor stores. Right. So, so there so, are no chains. No chains. Supermarkets can't sell. Supermarkets cannot sell wine. In Massachusetts, it's one man three licenses. Mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. New York, is also called a bottle shop state, and what a bottle shop means is you can only sell alcohol. You can't even sell snacks. Right. And, so if you wanted some truffled popcorn. Or Ooh, that sounds good. I a Slim Jim with your bottle of Rotor Cristal, you could not buy both things at the bottle shop. You, you pair your Cristal with Slim Jims, too? Well, it's a, it's a combination <laughs> made in heaven. It is. <laughs> oh, and there's all kinds of different laws on discounting. And in some states, you can't give a discount for buying in volume. Right. You know, and in some cases, you can't. There's, well, there's, I mean, the simple way to look at it is every single state is different, and every single state is allowed to be different. Right. And, and But one of the other parts is they also have different laws on things like tasting. And so there's states like Connecticut has, you know, tastes like some—California just passed a law that 
that retail stores could do tasting. Right. So you could taste right. like you would at a winery. Um, some of the states have different crazy laws. Connecticut's is, is a one-ounce pour, noon to 8 p.m., which seems somewhat in the idea is not to go too late at night so people don't come in to get drunk. Oh, so it's legal noon to 8 p.m. It's not legal the other times. Right. I thought you were only allowed one ounce between noon and 8 p.m., and yeah. after that you could drink what you no, wanted. No, it's any of that time. One-ounce <laughs> pours. Oregon, you can only taste wines grown in Oregon. Well, fair enough. Michigan, you can only taste wines that are not for sale at that store. <laughs> That's it, a beauty. I know. Uh, That's a beauty. And uh, Wyoming, the wines can be tasted, but the person pouring has to be, it can't be the winery. It has to right. be an agent in the winery, right. and the person has to live in Wyoming. Well, and in Texas, for example, the producer cannot pour wine for a consumer. He can stand next, next to, to them. Right. Yes. A, a sales rep, and the sales rep can pour it, but the winemaker cannot pour wine for consumers in Texas. Yes. And in Maryland, in Maryland, if you had a tasting, yes. you can't advertise it. You can't you put up a sign. That's a whole they, new kind they, of they blind tasting. You can't even tasting. put up a sign outside that says, we have a wine tasting. <laughs> so if you're, right. you know, Smith Winery, you you have to pretend, hey, I was just walking by and I thought, well, what the heck? Anybody want to taste some wine? That's right. Wow. <laughs> it goes on and on. And yep. so you can see why there's fear and confusion. But the fundamental thing for, for folks to understand why it gets so confusing, we're going to talk a little bit more about the, the nature of distributors as we go a little later in the show, is this idea that the three layers have to be separated. Right, and so that's what they causes, cannot cooperate. That's what they are. Right, that's what causes so much confusion. Now, I'm going to tell you a couple stories because it's illegal for a winery or a distribution company to give a gift to a retailer in order for them to carry wines. So, and we all know that it's very clear in the law. And if you were to show up and offer a retailer fifty dollars, they would say, "I'm sorry, I can't accept it." But there are wineries who offer to come in and put a big screen TV in the store to show a video about their winery. And mm-hmm. after it's been up for six weeks, they forget to collect it. Oh yeah. What are we going to do with that TV? Well, somebody's going to take it home. Yeah. Oh, there's and there's many things they do. They can they often will build. They, they'll they'll do the work on the floor to build the the right. stack of wine at the front of the wine department which benefits them because, because they get their the wine, wine stacked That's there, right. but they've also done some work. Yep. And they, yep. there's, there's many other things. One of my favorites was um, for a while in New Jersey, this was actually something distributors could do for stores. If a, uh, as a bonus for if you bought uh, you know, 10 cases of this wine, mm-hmm. they couldn't give you a cash bonus. But right. what they could do is they could give you an American Express cash card. Not As a, if that's a big difference. Not a Visa cash card, right. by the way, or an it, Amex. A master, it had to be an Amex. That an law Amex. has since been changed, but that's. <laughs> yeah, you wonder yeah. if somebody had a lobbyist. There. So, what does it mean for consumers? What it means is when you walk into a store and you're confused sometimes about why they're doing this or that. One of the things you may think back on is. What the heck? I'll bet this might have to do with the repeal approach. It's why we have it's why we have those alcohol labelings on bottles because there's a different tax structure above and below 14% alcohol. Above 14% alcohol, it's considered a fortified or dessert wine. That's a luxury, and you pay more money for it. Yeah. Although that, that used to be a barrier, it's so much less now. But and it goes on and on. But it, yep. it's, all of that goes back to the glory days of 1934 and yes. Al Capone. Thank you, Al Capone. All right, we'll have a little bit more talk about this issue later on the show, uh, but we are going to move on to questions. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Next up, you're going to learn, well, well, hopefully you'll learn something as we answer your questions. We'll be right back. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and it's time to take some questions from listeners. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. 
or look for us on iTunes. You can do that too. And you can subscribe for free on iTunes with just a little bitty click. If you're new to us, you might want to know uh, what are we doing answering questions about prohibition and history and all that sort of stuff. I want to know that, Rick. I don't have any idea, actually. <laughs> uh, now, I can tell you. I can tell you. you okay. Know, Paul, Paul has pushed the uh, limit on those laws because <laughs> he's a respected industry pro, and every industry pro does. He answers questions on experts.com. He teaches at Napa Valley College and around the world. I do, and and one of the things I do is organize tastings in all these different states. So I have had you to know. become very yeah, yeah, yeah. very well acquainted with these laws. And Rick, uh, well known wine writer, um, recently chaired a, a a nice panel on Chianti Classico down in San Francisco, and you've got uh, a New York Times bestselling book to your credit about wine, and another book that wasn't a New York Times bestseller about wine. So go for three. Yep. And in that book, by the way, there is a lot of information about what we were just talking about, the uh -huh. dealing with all the kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's written charmingly, I might add. <laughs> all right. Let's take some questions. Our first comes from Lynette in Corte Madera, and this is the one we were advertising. She cool. says, can you make wine with a 3D printer? Is it legal for us to advertise to questions? Yes, as long as we don't actually serve them. Okay. Yes. Okay. So can you make wine with a 3D printer? Um, no. No, you cannot. There are food. There's you know, A lot of folks use it in the food industry. Well, I have another version, though, Rick. Let's say that you really wanted to have in your cellar a bottle of one of those rare cult wines that people pay thousands of dollars for. You could probably make one, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't actually be like a real bottle. But oh, you could make the bottle, yeah. But you yeah. could make it look like that, and you could put it in your cellar, and you could point to it, and people would look at it and say, oh, wow, you must. So you can't actually make the liquid inside, but you could make phony bottles that m might fool at least a casual glance at your cellar. And most people who buy those wines, that's what they buy them for anyway, that's, just so they say right. they've got them in their cellar. That's right. So I think, I think Lynette's on to something. I think you and I should create in our, in our own wine collections a little special section for those 3D bottles of Chateau Latour and Chateau Lafitte Rothschild made with a 3D printer. Yeah, I, I'm so hoping I can figure out a 3D printer uh, to give us uh, like a good radio show. Or, or, or actually, you know what we should do is we should create listeners yes. on a 3D printer. Yes, we could. And you know how a 3D printer works, by the way, is um, it's... Uh, uh, it, it's like it takes a, a dot matrix, like a dot, like a basic old school printer, but it just right. says it at a very fine level and goes back and forth. So you know they do use it for food, for like desserts and layering chocolate and very very intricate yep. things. But yep. unfortunately, it just lays no up line. layers. It's yeah, it's sort of they're fun to watch. Yeah, although eventually you'll be able, it will be like Star Trek. You'll just say uh, beam me up, yeah, Scotty. No, you'll walk up to the little food thing and say uh, Bordeaux, nineteen eighty two, and you know you'll That's get right. something. That's right. All right, it. all right. Our next one comes from uh, Angela in Sunnyvale. She says, my husband won't let anyone within 20 yards of him start to open a bottle of wine without grabbing the corkscrew. He's got Ooh, some other issues, boy. too, she he says. He sounds like he's got a lot of issues. He opened a kind of old wine the other day and pulled a hole out in the middle of the cork, yep. which hardly budged. So how do you open an old bottle of wine? And any thoughts on how to get my husband to stop being such a dork? I got two answers for the first one, and the second one, the answer to the second question is divorce. Well, yeah, or just doghouse. Make... Yes. Sleep on the sofa. Yes, there you go. And don't let him drink wine. That's probably So right. as the cork ages, it dries out. It often gets kind of stuck in the neck of the bottle, and there are two different kinds of cork pullers. You may want to look at this. The first one makes the most sense for most people, which is if you look at the actual screw of a corkscrew. It's a screw. There are a lot of them that are badly built. Some of them look actually like a wood screw which have a it's sort of a center shaft and then threads around it. What you want is one of these big open helixes, kind of you can actually stick a toothpick down the middle of it. That will 
reach out and grab a much bigger section of the cork, and that will work better on an older bottle. If you know how to use it, those two-pronged, what yes, we used the, to call the Osso cork puller, will slide a prong down on either side of the cork, do it gently, then turn and pull, and that will pull out an older cork, provided you are really careful and you only push one prong down at a time. You kind of have to rock it in. If you push too hard and it's an older cork, you'll slam the cork right down into the wine. My solution, you're at a restaurant, you take this wine to a really good sommelier, and you say, go ahead, cowboy, knock yourself out. If you do mess it up, by the way, one of the really handy-dandy tricks is pour your wine gently through a coffee filter. Yes. And that that will get it. Rinse the filter first a little bit with another wine just to clean a little of the paper taste Oh, and you don't leave the coffee grinds in there? And you do not leave the coffee grinds in there, depending on the kind of wine. Okay. Well, uh, we've got a bunch more questions and a lot more to cover. Uh, We didn't tell her what to do about her husband. No, well, uh, go drink with somebody else, I think. Um, (laughs) All right. We will be back in the second half of the show with a whole lot more. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word. Coming up, we have some really bad wine writing when we come right back. Listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Such happy, happy music for such a horrible, horrible thing. It is is time. It is time. For some really horrible wine writing. And as is your way, Paul, you've brought in one of your favorite words. Well, you know, we're talking about prohibition. We're talking about all those laws and everything else. I love it when people describe a wine as authoritative. (laughs) Oh, don't don't mess with that wine. I don't know about you, Rick, but I'm not interested in a sub-dom relationship with my bottle of wine. (laughs) I kind of want to tell it when it's time to drink it. Or tweet. That wine will not let you tweet. You have to be very careful. (laughs) What the heck does it mean? Yeah, yeah. I've never known. Yeah, well, who knows? But people use it. It scares me. Yeah. So there's one. If if you're talking to me about wine, please don't say it's authoritative unless you're willing to uh, file a legal brief under its uh, advisement. Yes. Well, they probably do. All right. Well, mine, uh, mine's mine's fun for a couple of reasons. Um, I'm I'm not going to tell you what the wine is. I'm just going to read you that. Good, because then I can guess what the wine is. Yes. All from a state-grown fruit and very aromatic in the glass. The wine has notes of honeysuckle, white peach, pear, and tropical fruits. The entry is full and rich and textured with abundant fruit and balance. This delicious white is perfect for a day by the pool or paired with fresh goat cheese, blah, 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 including gourmet fish tacos and a shrimp Louis salad. Now, I need to note that they spelled Louis wrong, but that's beside the point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All right, so what what wine do you think that is? Um, I'm guessing this is either going to be a Viognier or a Moscato. Yeah, you would think that. It's actually a Sauvignon Blanc. Ay, 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 so, ay, ay. so here's the thing that this critic, if this is all true, by the way, the critic needs to say something somewhere. Nowhere did this critic say that this is not typical is, of a Sauvignon yeah, Blanc. This is going to surprise you because if you think of Sauvignon Blanc tasting the way Sauvignon Blanc tastes. It's lean. It's grassy. It's bright. This it's is citrusy, a different yeah, kind of wine. It doesn't say that. Okay, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's for all we know, this exactly is how it tastes. But that's one of the things that we always ask of our critics is to give us some perspective, not just list flavors. Well, and the other side of this is if this is Sauvignon Blanc and it tastes like this, I'm going to guess that some the winemaker, he says it's a state-grown fruit, but I'm wondering if the state has some muscat on the property as well that they added into the wine. Entirely possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. You are listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. And don't forget, you can find us on iTunes and subscribe for free with just a click. We'll be right back with our historic history moment. 
You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Man, I like those guys. I got to say. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming. See you next week. <laughs> All right. So what historic history moment do you have for us? Well, you know, what I love is I have is one of the classes I teach at the college is this class on the history of wine and culture. And I have a an etiquette book from Emily Post who tells people how to host a dinner party at a finer social home in the 1920s. Now, remember, 1920s, prohibition. That's right. So one of the questions got to answer is, what the heck do you do about beverages? She has the perfect advice because on the one hand, she says, if you are lucky enough to have a cellar, meaning if you've still got wine left over from when you could buy wine in 1918, by all means, serve it. But if you are unfortunate and don't have a cellar, you should put water glasses out, fill them with water, and then add food coloring to the water to give the table a more festive appearance. Uh-huh. So I've had wine that tasted just like that. Just like that, yeah. yeah. I bet you do that at, at your house anyway. Just <laughs> I try to get away with it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> After the fourth bottle, Rick, who's going to notice, <laughs> Well, that's right? usually when I bring it out, yeah, you know. Everybody goes for the really good stuff at the end of the party, not me. I'm, I'm, getting, right. I'm getting them the colored water. <laughs> I just thought that was a wonderful image. And do you get, do you go with like the red and the gold, and or would you go for like green and purple just for Mardi Gras or something? Ooh, there you go. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, it was a cute story, and I, and I love the I love the the vision. Ah. How about you? Well, I'm sort of back to in the same era too, and we and actually uh, we're going to talk a little bit about our friend uh, Andrew Volstead, for whom the Prohibition Act was named. The Volstead Act. The Volstead Act. He in theory uh, wrote it, but of course he didn't. It was right. as you mentioned earlier, Wayne Wheeler. Right, and he didn't actually expect it to. Pass. No, he did not. Um, and uh, but he did not benefit from from this because uh, <laughs> the my point was that he he lost his office. His next uh, his bid in, in 1922 for re-election, he was dumped. Yep. So there you go. Don't yep. don't although, take off the people who drink. Although in during prohibition, they did make small statuettes of Senator Volstead, which concealed a corkscrew so that should you want to open a bottle of wine, you could pull out your statue of Senator Volstead, pull out the corkscrew, and open the bottle of wine. Nice. Nice, nice. huh? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet you'd like one of those, wouldn't you? Well, you know, they were, the distributors were probably giving him away, actually, right <laughs> after, is, um, and I use that as a transition, because I did want to talk a little bit more about the distributors in the middle of this process. Right. You know, we talked a little bit about this idea of whether you can or can't send wine through mail. You know, so right. if you buy wine or wine in California or from Florida... Can you have it shipped home? No, technically you cannot. Technically you cannot. In California you can. Yes. Um, but it has to do, once again, it's each state's laws. And this is one of the really difficult fights, in, 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 oddly enough, in American politics these days because American politics is all fueled by everybody trying to hang on to their own territory often or take somebody mm-hmm. else's territory. Not just in America and it's not just true. now. That's politics, it's politics in general It's everywhere. politics and economics all, yeah, all tangled all together. Yeah. But, is so, this a wine show? This is because okay, it is about sure. shipping wine. Um, we're just we're trashing everyone here is what we're doing. Um, but so one of the things, you know, this has been and, and then was the Supreme Court ruling um, a couple of uh, years ago. It's finally ago, starting yeah. to take take effect that basically said that if a state allows shipping within its, its the state, for example, if California allowed 
wines to be shipped around California, it can't pro, uh, prohibit wines from other states to be shipped in as well. A classic constitutional case because you have interstate shipping laws which say no state can erect barriers to trade with another state. And then you've got prohibition which says each state can regulate alcohol within its own borders. And the Supreme Court was asked to step in there and say, well, wait a minute then how do we deal with this fact that wineries want to ship across state lines and some states allow it and some states don't and are they barriers to trade and all the rest? So the answer is each state needs to decide whether that's legal, but it has to decide it not only for its, for, for the wineries within the state, but also outside the state. States where there were a lot of wineries, states like New York, have now allowed more direct shipping. States where there were no wineries or not many important wineries like Florida don't allow any shipping. Yeah, and part of it is to protect the, the business that is there. But also yep. it's because the there isn't a, there isn't a public outcry or, or political outcry from those wineries because they don't have much power in the state. Right. And so they're the, the distributors, they would prefer that you go through them, that right. you have to go through them. And That's so right. it's a really, really simplistic way of describing the incentive sanity around it. Stay tuned. Yeah. It's even worse in beer, by the way. And the reason why is because in beer, the producers actually do have a lot of power. And the producers, the reason is because the big boys, you know, the Miller... Budweiser well, they're folks. big national brands. Right. They and do, so yeah. they can tell a distributor, we would prefer that you don't carry these small micro brews because if you do, we'll just take our business to somebody else. Mm. And for all of the growth of the craft beer market, it's still 80% plus the big the guys. Big boys. Yeah. So if you are a beer distributor, you have to go along with your customers, even if it's in just a casual discussion. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how legal that threat is, but that uh, threat is common. Are, they, are yeah. they taping this show? Is this going on the record? We have lost any possible beer... Uh, sponsorship, by the way. Um, And I think there's a guy outside with a baseball bat waiting for us. In any case, uh, once again, it, nothing uh, nothing is always that simple, and that's why if you want to know why it's confusing, it's even more than just listening to us. It really is confusing. There is, by the way, a really, really good book. If you didn't watch the PBS special on on Prohibition, which was very, very yeah, good, yeah, yeah, all of special. that was based on a book by a guy by the name of Omert, O-M-E-R-T, and the book is called Last Call, and it is a fascinating look I at, have read that book. at Prohibition. It is a good read, too. It's a very I agree. good book. It's, it's very a very good, good read. It's really interesting, and it, it will make you shake your head at some points. Um, speaking of shaking your head, we are going to take a few more questions Excellent. when we come right back. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and we're taking some questions. And don't forget, you can be one of those folks that ask us a question, and we'll say really nice things about you because we like people who ask us questions. Um, just go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And don't forget, you can also find us on iTunes. Subscribe for free, one little bitty click. All right. Are we opening the mailbag? Well, I've not been calling it that, if you had noticed, <laughs> because it makes us sound old. And older. Older, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so okay. we are we are opening the... Uh, the question uh, question forwarding device. So we need an AOL voice that says, you've got questions. Yes. Yeah. Actually, that makes us sound old, too, because that's <laughs> yeah. that's like almost— Nobody's used AOL yes, in 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In any just case. lost that sponsor. Well, our question comes from uh, a regular listener, in Marty Tatterson in Roseville. And okay. she's a regular listener because she's Matt's friend. I don't, uh, I don't think she even likes us. Yeah. Well, um, but we she's, should, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but she had a good question, and it's a common question. And she says, a friend says all wines get better with age. Is that true? And then if that's true, how do they get better? Well, um, yeah, there are a number of jokes about this, about wines get better with age. The older I get, the better 
the wine looks. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, but in fact, some wines get better with age and some wines don't. And the easiest way to think about it is, first of all, 95% of the wines that are produced in the, in the market are made to drink pretty much when they're released. And there's no real point in hanging on to them because they aren't going to get better. They're not designed to get better. They're designed to be really nice right now. Then there's a group of wines within that 95% that are actually made to drink when they're young, fresh, and fruity. And the older they get, the, the less young, right. the less fresh, and the less fruity they are. And that's not a pretty thing. And we should point out that that includes many, many of the white wines that you're going to find uh, on the market today. And yeah. some reds. Yeah, I mean, it's a reds. little bit like saying, you know, because dried flowers are beautiful, do all flowers look better when they're dried? And the answer is not even mm -hmm. close. Yeah, but when we talk about wines aging, you're, you're almost better off thinking— and there are certainly major exceptions, but you're almost thinking about your whites. Don't think about your whites aging. Right. Certainly, you know, right. this, the, your Chardonnay, your Sauvignon Blanc, right. all that stuff that, that does, a, you know, you buy them, drink them fresh. Yes. The fresher, the better. Yes. But Rick generally soup, drinks his as fast as he can get the bottles I open. I generally, uh, well, I can't drink it in the store because it's against the Tide House <laughs> laws, but if That's I right. could, I would. Yeah. So I, I just go, I sit in the car and, and drink it, and then I go drive home. No, I do, <laughs> no, not. do not. I do not do that. So I, the I make answer, my wife drive home. The answer to uh, Marty is very clear. Not all wines get better with age. In fact, most wines, most wines do not get better with age. And I'm going to even go on record as saying most wines, meaning more than 50%, get worse with age. Right. You ought to just drink them. And by the way, that question comes from something. Uh, it really is winemaking, you know, a half a century ago, sort of. Uh, or more. Or more, yeah. Before that, people had all the abilities to make wine ready to go. And so wine did need to age, to soften, to coalesce. You know, they were they were in some ways undrinkable. Certainly, you know, uh, more than a half century ago, but but winemaking is so much more sophisticated, and and frankly, grapes are a little riper, and well, and, lot, and and tastes have changed. And it's so also it's, because most of the wine writing up until even now, most wine writing is about wines that cost thirty, forty, fifty, seventy five dollars. Very little wine writing is about ten dollar bottles of wine, right? And right. and yet, but most wine drinking most is about wine is about ten dollars a bottle. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in any case, the answer nope. is uh, no. <laughs> no. And nope. it, unless you are absolutely sure it's going to get better, drink it. And I will tell you that on the on the All Expert site where I answer a bunch of questions about wine, I would say 85, 90 percent of the questions I get about this topic mention wines that are at this point absolutely DOA. Mm. They are dead on arrival, and this person is writing me thinking he's got a rare or she's got a rare bottle of wine that's worth a lot of money, and I have to tell her, you know what? That wine was old 15 years ago. Yeah, they think you're antiques roadshows. That's uh, exactly right. Yeah. I am antique, but I ain't no roadshow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't mean to tell you that, by the way. <laughs> Thanks very All right. much. We have another one that actually uh, – it's we've been on this – we had a question on this topic not so long ago, but actually fits what we were talking about today. This is from Amanda in Pasadena, and she says – found a wine we really like at a restaurant and asked if we could buy a bottle. And they said, sure, bottle to take home is what she meant. They said, yep. sure, but they'd have to open it and put the cork back in. What exactly, was that about? because the restaurant has what's called an on-premise license, going back to prohibition. Meaning can, they can only drink it on-premise. They can sell you wine, but you got to drink it on the spot. And so if you buy something from them, they have to open it. And it's the same thing. You go to a retail shop and you say, hey, I want to buy this bottle, but <clears throat> excuse me, can you open it? 
Yeah, and that's you know the, the and that the, you hear this phrase a lot. It gets thrown around a lot. On premise, off premise, off premise. Now you know means they can only sell off to somebody <laughs> off the. Uh, to so you have to you can't drink it there. You have to take it away. Right. There are some places they can have both. Lot. Yeah, uh, wineries, for example, will have sometimes will have both licenses. Um, you know, well, and and if there's a often you'll see a restaurant with a wine. There won't well, often, but there are many restaurants with wine shops attached. Right, but those are in fact those are in separate businesses, they separate, are separate licenses. businesses, and you'll notice there's always a lockable door between those two yes. businesses, so they can clarify that they're not. right, which drives some people nuts because there the good restaurants will charge you uh, the good sort of operation issues. Say, well, often if you buy a, the wine in their restaurant shop and right. then bring it into the restaurant, they'll they'll charge you just a minor corkage right. fee. Um, some of them charge you the, the standard corkage fee. Yeah. And uh, and frankly, that just doesn't seem nice. Well, it's hard, but you know, it's how restaurants make money. So yeah. uh, that's a whole it's, nother, that's a whole nother show. Yeah. Corkage. Yeah. yeah. Corkage is another show. Um, okay. This one is from my dentist, by the way. I this see. Looking down in the mouth? Uh that's really remember no puns here. We we're not doing puns. This is a pun. We promise our listeners. Question is how many times have yeah. dentists heard that joke? Yeah, it's true. Uh, she's actually a very good dentist. I like my dentist, uh-huh. um, but I'm not going to use her name only because uh, she doesn't want to be associated with us. Because you don't want to be sitting there. Yes, I don't when wanna, she's I working do on your mouth. Do not want my dentist mad at me. <laughs> um, and she's frankly classier. But she had a, she had a question. It was you know I, 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 we, she, we were we were actually talking about this show. And she had heard it. She was talking because you were going aha. Uh, uh, well, this is actually before. And she said. <laughs> I said, so ask it, what's your, what's the what's your biggest question? She said she gets confused, and I said, is that the first time first time I've heard this? What, she gets confused about all those uh, the, Shiraz, Shirazes, Petite Shiraz. What's the difference? What's the difference? Yes. No difference. Well, well there's petite. a difference between Petite Shiraz. Yes. As long as it doesn't have a modifier in front or behind it, it's the same. Shiraz and Shiraz is made from the same grape. There used to be, and it may still slightly be, a stylistic issue that says that if you call it Shiraz, it's more likely to be made in the Australian style. Certainly, Australians are more likely to call it Shiraz. And if it's made in Australians the, always call it. Almost and always, then yeah. Shiraz is more likely to be made in the French style from the Rhone Valley. But it's the same grape. Um, it's a big red wine with a lot of flavor and a lot of attraction, and I like it very much. And by the way, sales of this wine are plummeting throughout yeah, America. Yeah, so. it's really too bad. There was that old joke, what's the difference between an elephant and Syrah? Eventually, you can move an elephant. I see, yeah. yeah. And, it's, and, and Syrah makes wonderful wine. Yeah, and, um, it is, and the reason why is because of Shiraz, or Shiraz, yes. is because Yellowtail sort of took the market by storm when people were still just getting into red wine in lots and of ways. And took it right down to four ninety nine a bottle, and, and nobody could sell Shiraz for more. Right, than so that. if you sell it for more than that, plus it, you know it, the Yellowtail style was a very jammy, not you know sweet. It's, it's sweet. Okay, I was being nice. Yep. It was, and so you know, folks don't want that; they're afraid of it. But you know, Syrah or Shiraz, either way, it's going to be smoky and has such great depth and earth, and it goes. Yeah. Terrific with food. So that's it's, different yeah. from Petite Syrah. Which is an entirely different grape, although there is a, a genetic connection. There's a genetic connection, but the, the Petite Syrah theoretically comes— Maybe spelled the same, by the way. —comes from the same area of France originally, um, but it is a darker, a, a more black color, purpley color, rather than the red of Syrah. It usually has higher tannins. It makes for very big, intense— and often not very elegant or charming wines. 
but which isn't to say they not deli- they are still could be still delicious. They're they just, could they're be. just they're they they're not be. they're not the lighter, more dexterous wines as we're saying. Um, petite, by the way, is uh, referring to the size of the grape. The size of the grape, which yeah. means the grapes are smaller. There's more skin per per juice in a smaller grape, and that's why you have more of the tannin in the color. I mean, that's where the that's where the tannin and color in the grape juice comes from is the skins. Yeah, and if it mattered, uh, some some places it's called durif. Uh, but it is uh, it is an entirely different, entirely different, and there is yeah. in fact an organization. I think they're still around called PS, PS I, I Love, Love You, you yes. which is Petite Syrah, yeah. and uh, they occasionally they do would, tastings and things. And they would not be happy with your characterization. Well, that's probably true, but you know, I've I've tried and I've tried and I've tried, and I I will just say that in the panoply of grapes that I fall in love with, Petite Syrah is that one girl in eighth grade that I just never thought was that attractive. You know, uh, and she's turned out to be a CEO of a major company, and you should be nice to her. I'm sure uh, that's Actually, true. I have to say that I do like Petites uh, from Clarksburg. Uh-huh. I find that they have like, mm-hmm. kind of a spiciness to them. And, Although we have yeah. established, well established on this show that you will drink anything. So. Oh, of course. That's not like... <laughs> It's not like I'm discriminating for gosh sakes. No, right. <laughs> All right, we've got we've got one more. Um, cool from, from Alex Lee in Placerville. There you go. Alex, That's wine country. He asks, "How dark can a rosé be before it stops being a rosé?" Wow, it does it, sound it, like it sounds like that should be like a, a tongue twister. A rosé by any other name? How much wood could a rosé pack if a rosé could pack? I'm Never mind. A chuck, I guess it would be. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, rosé by another name. Right. Uh, well, it just goes to show you go to the classics, and I go to the I go to the first grade rhymes. Um, so that's a good question. There's no answer for it. Yeah. In Bordeaux, there's actually a separate kind of wine that was made in the old days that was between rosé and a normal red wine. It was lighter. It was clearer. And so it was called claret. And it's where we get the term claret, which today British wine lovers call Bordeaux, Bordeaux claret. Right. But it's not actually the same word. Claret actually means a lighter, paler red wine, but not as deep as rosé. In America, rosé means anything that's between white and red. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, there's, there's even a handful of styles. You know, the, the classic French style of making rosé is, say, you had, oh, let's just call it a petite syrah in the vat. There you go. And, um, and you wanted to make it, uh, you, you bleed off some of the juice because, remember, the flavor comes from the grapes. So if you wanted to make it more intense after the initial contact, you bleed off some of the juice and it comes out right. pink. Right. And it also comes out lighter. Uh, right. But there are other ways that, that people make it now. But that's the initial. And, and if you did that, I think no matter what color it was, it would be hard to argue it's not a rosé. Well, you know, it, and the colors range from what they call that onion skin, which is that Provence-style, very pale, almost sort of orangish-yellowish yeah. pink, to very deep, bright salmon color for garnacha from, uh, from Navarra. Too, and the, I'm sure that Alex is writing about the fact that he's seen a couple of red wines that are, you know, you can see through, you can see your hand through them, but that's about all, and they're called rosés, yeah. and you know what, they are. Yes, as long as it smells as sweet, to use your uh, <laughs> metaphor. Okay, um, that's enough for questions, and we're zipping up our mail receiving unit, whatever it is. <laughs> if you'd like to ask us a question, uh, you can go to Rick and Paul Wine, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Coming up, we have a food and wine pairing for you. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It's time for food pairing and our food and wine pairing. And since we've been talking about wine in the 20s or 
lack of wine in the 20s. I, I went yeah, and hard found, liquor in the 20s. That's true. But this was uh, one of the main courses for parties. If you looked at every kind of party, they would suggest that you serve this, which is ham. Not oh, yes. honeyed ham, but really just simple, salty ham. Yep. So what's, uh, what's your wine with a simple, salty ham, which well, I happen to love, by the way? Okay, so I have two, two suggestions, and they're almost diametrically opposed. On the one hand, I love a nice Rioja or Chianti Classico with ham. Um, bright acidity, beautiful. You know, you got the saltiness from the ham makes you thirsty. On the other end of the spectrum, go to Alsace, open a bottle of Gewürztraminer, that mm. aromatic Ooh, dry white wine, yeah. and salty ham, and either way, you're golden. Very nice. I'm going to opposites, too, but there are different kinds of opposites. One is our friend Syrah we were just talking about. Yes. That's yes. sort of an earthy Syrah, picking up yep. the ham. The other is because of the salt. Yes. A sparkling, yeah. a lovely bubbly. Uh, well, you're going to drink bubbly. With it's anything. always my first. Yeah, yeah. And no, but let's but, add, let's but add one more. Case. This is a case where it really does. It is, work. and yeah. let's add one more, which is uh, fino sherry. Oh yeah, um, sherry and ham. It's classic. Yeah, very, so, very. So Spanish. there we've got. It turns out that ham goes with a ton of different wines. Yeah, maybe a good reason to serve it at buffets. Yeah, fino sherry is a really good idea for something like that. It is. Um, uh, you know, it's one of these wines that we Americans forget. You've, you've brought this up a lot. Yep. That's one of the grapes. that. Yep. It, but it's a really great food pairing wine, it too. Is. Because it picks up, especially when we're eating salty things, yep. it picks up the, yep. the nice, niceties cold, of it. Ice cold, chilled, just crack the bottle open on a, yeah. on a rock and nearby it, and start slugging yes, it down. Yes, that's it. Beautiful stuff. That's how I drink all my wine. Just take a <laughs> swing it at a rock, and, and there we go. All right, so those are all of our tips for today. Wow. And that is our our show for today. Our engineer is Matt Bassini. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for letting Marty uh, listen. (laughs) Thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use. If you'd like to ask us a question that we can answer on this show, go to Rick and Paul Wine, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Look for us on iTunes and subscribe for free. Just a little quick. And if you learned anything today, we hope it's that it's this. Our show is not the worst idea ever. No, it's third. At least third. (laughs) Maybe even fourth. I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. Remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially us.